0: The Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to be with us, to inspire us, to give us guidance as we explore and study and try to understand this letter to the Hebrews. Our efforts today and as we go forward in the next few weeks to open our minds and our hearts uh, and set aside sometimes preaching. Help us to you know, be a little more flexible and uh, truly listen to you and to hear what you have to say to us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.
1: Interesting little thing
0: happened this morning. Quite often uh, before I started class, I. I like a, an open statement of some kind, you know, to help. Me. And somehow last night I went to bed, and I didn't have that opening statement, you know. And I kept saying, "Lord, help me to have something to start with," you know. And this morning, for those of you who were at mass, the light went on. You see. Today we celebrate the Feast of St. Jerome. Jerome was the person by direction of Pope Damascene in the 3rd century who brought all of the writings that were out there at that time together in what we have today as the New Testament. The Old Testament had been sort of assembled in the way we have it about the second century B.C. But the new writings from all of those, the apostles and Paul and Timothy and so forth and so on, uh, didn't come along uh, into a nice little book like we have them today. Uh, They were scattered here and there, along with a lot of other writings. So it was St. Jerome that uh, was commissioned by the Pope to bring them together and translate them into the common language of that time, which was then Latin. It had changed from Greek to Latin uh, between the first and the third centuries A.D. Remember, up to that time, uh, to the glories of the Roman Empire, Greek was always the... uh, language of the educated and the elite. But over a period of time, it changed to Latin. And the letter or or the book that Jerome assembled was uh, then called the Vulgate. The Vulgate, of course, is a derivative of the word vulgar because it was thought by many of those old timers who spoke only Greek as being a very vulgar language. Well, it became the language of all people and even the educated over a period of time. Now, how does that fit into what we're doing here? Well, it's important to understand how the Bible really got together. And it was through the efforts of St. Jerome, who really brought it together. Now, he had to have some uh, plan, some criteria, as to which writings he was going to use and which he had to exclude, because there were abundance of writings at that time, just like there are today. And so he decided that, through prayer, of course, and consultation with the Pope and many others, that the New Testament, as it began to be called, as we do today, would contain only those writings that came from the first century writers. That is, primarily the apostles, uh, St. Paul, uh, St. James, a few others, such as Hebrews, which... We still don't know exactly who wrote them, but they all came from the first century. Now, that doesn't mean that there were a few other writings out there of importance that came along later. But somewhere along the line, he had to have some rule and a cutoff. So it became uh, the end of the first century. Anything that was written afterwards by others, uh, was excluded. That doesn't mean that they weren't acceptable and that they weren't uh, of value. All right, now, let's set that aside. For those of you who have been to Mass this morning um, and heard the first reading, the first reading from Nehemiah, Nehemiah is one of those people from the Old Testament that you don't hear a lot about, but he was a very important person Uh, For several reasons, Nehemiah was one of those very important people to the Jewish uh, returnees, you might say, from Babylon. He was a very important important person who had rose up in the ranks of uh, administration of the king of Babylon, Artaxerxes. By name. And it's interesting because we have the same kind of um, story in Genesis where one of Jacob's sons rose up to be a very important part of the administration of the Pharaoh in Egypt. So we have a counterpart there. Uh, But Nehemiah is recognized as the person. Who was most responsible for rebuilding Solomon's Temple uh, for those people who returned from Babylon to Israel? And then you had a a comparable person on the other side, uh, and that was the priest Ezra. The two together are often the two are often linked together. I should say. Nehemiah is responsible for building up the physical side of Judaism in the early part, or the latter part of the 6th century, early part of the 5th century BC. Ezra is the person that is most responsible for building or bringing together the Old Testament in its original form there were a number of writings in the Old Testament uh, that had been scattered all over, written by different four different groups of people over a period of time, beginning way back in the 10th century uh, B.C. And it was Ezra who kind of brought them together and sort of uh, edited, you might say, uh, and then wrote the book of Genesis. Uh, You might say, well, you know, Genesis goes back to the first book of the Bible. Yes, but it wasn't written until around the 5th century because when Ezra started putting these books together, it started out with Moses and so forth. And there was, you know, there was a lot of things that happened before Moses. And so there was no beginning. So Ezra decided that there had to be a book that brought together those writings or traditions or legends or whatever it was that the people actually believed to fill in this time from creation up to the time of Moses. And that is how the book of Genesis came around. We're not certain again For sure who wrote it, but all fingers sort of point to the priest Ezra. Alright. So you have Nehemiah is building up the physical side of Judaism in the fifth century, and Ezra is building up the religious, uh, side through the writings. Okay. And that, I'm sorry, Anna? about this, well, there's a little bit of difference in time. These people were not actually, uh, working together because Nehemiah came first and Ezra came a little later. Alright. But not much. They're both, uh, considered, uh, late, excuse me, uh, late sixth century, early fifth century. Alright. Remember, in the Old Testament, you work backwards, all right? Okay, so that, in a way, is sort of a, uh introduction to what we're studying today, because in Hebrews, <coughs> we have a great number of uh, little incidents or snippets, you might say, of comparison of going back to the Old Testament, and that's important. It's important for several reasons, because as I said in the last two meetings, the Old Testament was important to Judaism and important to Christianity because it was the foundation. Jesus really did not teach a lot of new things. He taught, with one exception, excuse me, which I'll get to in a minute, What he tried to do was get the people to go back to the basics of things that Moses taught. You see, between the time of Moses and the time of Christ is when uh, all of the Ten Commandments were exploded into several hundred other uh, little laws, you might say. And the people got so hung up with laws that... They really neglected God and they did not develop a personal relationship with God. The Jewish people today do not believe in a personal relationship with God. It's not that it's wrong, it's just that they feel, oh, they're not worthy enough. They uh, God doesn't have a personal interest in them as individuals and so forth and so on. It's rather unfortunate that they think that way uh, because in Christianity it's almost the opposite. We feel that God is or we should feel, let's put it that way, we should feel that God is really interested in us, individual me, you as a person. And if we don't have that feeling, then something is missing. Okay. Yes? Most of, most of it was after. For, and, and Susan has a good point. She says, were the 613 laws, 613 laws that the Jewish people still worship today, uh, and I'm using that phrase directly, they worship the laws, not God. But they think in worshiping the laws and fulfilling the laws, that that is worshiping God. God is not interested. Most of those laws were not begun as laws by Moses. Remember, Moses led the people through the desert for 40 years. We'll get to some of that as to why in a few minutes. But during that time, he had to make certain rules and regulations because he was leading a large group of people through a dry, arid region. And you had to be extremely careful for hygiene reasons. And so most of the dietary laws were really not religious laws. They were laws to help people keep healthy. So, you can just imagine uh, trying to uh, bring people through desert for so many years uh, without refrigeration, without sanitation, without fresh water at times, um, and so forth and so on. So, they had to be very careful. But over a period of time, particularly after they came back or into the promised land, those dietary laws worked their ways into their form of religion. And they became part of the 613 laws later. Uh, and they became part of their faith-based religion. And that wasn't the way they were intended to begin with. Yes, ma'am. Yes. It's still boring, but it's a very interesting book to read. I recommend to read. Not very long. Yes. It's really book. Yes, that's that's right. The lady just um, mentioned that the book of Leviticus carries uh, a number of those laws and uh the number of festivals and sacrifices. Okay. One of the sacrifices uh, which we'll get into next week was the sacrifice of first fruits, which really consisted of uh, bread and wine. Okay. Yes? <laughs> no Moses did not write the first five books of the Bible, even though many people still believe that. Moses is responsible. Moses is the most influential person of the Old Testament, but he did not sit down and write those books. All right? And just as I said, Genesis was written, we assume, or we believe, Uh, that the book of uh, Genesis was written by Ezra in the 5th century but the other books of the Bible were not written by Moses Okay, most of those came along much much later now many of the stories in the uh, books of the Old Testament originated or were based on uh, things that Moses said or did Particularly Deuteronomy. And that is why Deuteronomy is really the basis of the Torah, of the Jewish law. But it did not come from the hand of Moses. So, well, we're getting a little off track, but I hope you find some of this historical minutiae that I spell out of interest. Yes, John? Uh-huh. It the, the the, the, about the being on Well, no, it was it was primarily the temple but uh, as much of the city as it could be. It was both. Really? Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. But there's a point in there that I really wanted to make and you just brought it up. Okay. As I said, he became uh, a favorite and a very high level uh, position within the uh, government, you might say, of the king, Artaxerxes. And he, the story goes if you weren't at mass this morning, shame on you. Uh, uh, he was he was walking around, kind of sad, downcast, and so forth. And and the king recognized this and wanted, you know, inquired, what's what's wrong? You know, are you not feeling well? And he says, no, I'm not. It's not my feeling. I'm you know I'm cutting the whole thing a little short. Uh, he was sad, and he was sad because his people back in uh, Israel uh, were floundering around and had. No guidance. There were no uh, authorities. There were no rules, and unfortunately, the people who returned from Babylon to Israel were clashing with those people who never left Israel in the first place, and so forth. And you know, there was a lot of disturbance going on. And so the king asked Nehemiah, "Well, what would you want to do about it?" And he said he wanted to go back and help those people uh, reconstruct the city. And of course what he really means is the temple was the most important thing within the city. And they didn't really reconstruct Solomon's temple to the glory that it was but they reconstructed it to at least a usable uh, temple. Okay, So that's the point. But before he answered the king he prayed to God for guidance. You know, and he asked God, whatever God wanted, this is what he wanted. And that is the way it came out. So that's a long way around to what I was trying to get to. Okay, let's move on. Chapter 2 of the Letter to the Hebrews talks about faithfulness the faithfulness of christ but also the faithfulness that we have to have in order to be true catholics and true christians okay we cannot just go through the motions uh for uh other reasons you know my wife dragged me to church this morning uh Or, I had to bring my kids, so I figured, well, I'll come too. Um, Or, it's the nicest thing to do on Sunday, is to go to church. Uh, Church is one thing, but your relationship with God through Jesus Christ is over and above that, should be more important than just going to church. Not that going to church isn't important, but... It's why do you go to church? I've heard people throughout the years say, well, I don't go to church anymore because I just don't get anything out of it. Well, the point is, you don't go there to get something out of it. You go there to give. And in the process of giving, then you get. In the process of giving your love, your attention, your participation, your devotion, then you receive the love of God. And the feeling of that you've done something worthwhile. But how many people go to church, or again, you know, because my wife dragged me here, uh, or the kids came, so I thought, well, I'll go along with it, you know. Or other reasons... But they leave because they didn't get anything out of it. And that's because they didn't put anything into it. And that's so important to remember. You get what you sow. That's O-W, of course. Uh Uh-huh. You get what you sow. And the faithfulness of Christ. And later on we will see about the perfection of Christ. Well, a lot of people just kind of dismiss that by saying, well, if he's God, he's perfect, isn't he? Yes. But remember, he was human as well. And he was human for a reason. God sent him, God the Father, that is, sent him here to represent all humanity, all mankind. So in doing so, he had the experience some of what all of mankind has to experience in the process. And so he starts out as a babe, like any other, and has to grow up learning all the rules and regulations and customs and so forth and so on. I'll never forget one time when I was talking about that in... One time, I said something along the lines of, "Well, he probably peed in his pants," <gasps> and oh, somebody thought that was just horrible. Uh, thought, yeah, what do kids do at that age? You know? he was human, and the perfection that Hebrews is talking about is the perfection of learning all of the things that human beings have to learn and experience a great number of those things on a personal basis to represent mankind so that when we pray to Christ, to God through Christ, we are praying to somebody who has experienced a lot of the problems that we go through. So we're not praying to, you know, some high and mighty God or spirit up there that doesn't know anything about, uh, you know, my boss, I just can't get along with her. Besides, she's a woman. Yeah. Yeah. My spouse, uh, she snores in bed. You yeah. <laughs> know. God experienced all of those kinds of things. Not necessarily the spouse part of it, but you know. Uh, And so when we pray, we can pray to somebody who's gone through all of the same kinds of things that we've gone through. That's what this Hebrews is trying to convey. And get that out of your mind that because he was God... You know, he didn't have any problems when he was hanging on the cross. You know, it was just a lark. He was just going through the motions. No way. No way. He suffered the most horrible death that anybody could suffer. And one thing that many people don't think about or realize is that people that were crucified were crucified totally naked. And that was one of the biggest problems in Jewish society at that time. That is showing too much flesh, and it is still in many Eastern countries, showing too much flesh was a big no-no in society. It was the most shameful thing that a person could experience. Being naked in in, in public okay. today you you, know, you you go to San Francisco and you might see that anywhere it's in Union Square, uh, but in that time no in that time it was a, a, a very cringing problem. Okay, so that's just a minor thing. The suffering of carrying the cross, of being beaten 39 times. Why 39? Anyone know why 39 times? Well, yes. The, The law was, as Anna just pointed out, the law was a man could not be whipped more than 40 times. And so if anyone remembers the movie The Passion of the Christ, when Christ was being whipped, the people were counting in the back in Latin, uno, et cetera, and to make sure that he wasn't struck with the whip more than 40 times, more than 39, I should say. That was the minimum. Or, I'm sorry, that was the maximum uh, that a person could be whipped. Okay. And of course, the way they did it and the instruments that they used, most people wouldn't last that long anyways. Uh, So he went through the extent of the whipping, the carrying of the cross, and finally the being nailed to the cross. And believe me, any human being could really go through that. But he had a purpose. He had a goal, and it was his father's will that he experience and suffer all of this in order to take upon himself the punishment due all mankind for their sins. Because, as we will see next week when we get into... The discussion on the high priest, or about the high priest, their sacrifices, although good in themselves, as far as they could go, they were not equal to the sacrifice that Christ made. And they could never be. Because Christ was perfect. In many, you know, perfect is perfect. I was going to say in many respects, no. If you're perfect, you're perfect in everything. Um, but being perfect and being human at the same time has a, you know, is a difficult thing for most of us to kind of get into our heads and understand. And yet it is something that I think we all should spend some time on doing. Yes, sir? Um. Not. Um, did Jesus have to go to Bible study? I mean, or did he, you know, did, I try to understand his human nature and his divine nature. And it's almost like, do you think he had to study all the scriptures? You had to learn? Like you said, we had to, you know, he had to grow up do all these things. Yes, you know, yes, by all means. And that's an important point. The gentleman just asked, did Jesus have to study the scriptures like the rest of us? And the answer is yes. Yes. Now, as you all know, there were a lot of unusual circumstances about his birth. Do you suppose that the mother, you know, Mary and Joseph, kept those from him and didn't tell him about those things as he was old enough to understand growing up? Sure. And they encouraged him to study the scriptures. Remember, at the age of about 13, he was caught in the, uh, well, he was sort of left behind. You I mean, uh, he was the original left behind boy. Uh, he was, uh, you know, after three days, they found him in the temple, and he was sort of um, discussing very deep subjects with uh, the, the high priests and the scribes in the temple, and they were amazed at what he was saying. And that is because his mother encouraged him to study the scriptures in order to understand what the unusual circumstances of his birth meant. And you can see that he did study he was able to write. Remember, he did write on the ground something. We don't know exactly what it was. Uh, but I'd like to think that he was probably telling uh, some of the people that were standing there that he knew their sins as well, but who knows? Uh, no. He had to do all those things that we have to do uh, because he had to experience and be part of all humanity. Yes? So during this time, does he already know that he was the Son of God? Well, that's an important point. The lady just asked, during that time, the early days, okay, did he know he was the Son of God? And the answer is, we think not. All right? Because if you go to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, it talks about Jesus setting aside his divinity. And he did that, as I said earlier, to experience all the things that all human beings have to experience. So if he knew right along as a 13-year-old boy that he was the son of God, that would sort of counter what he was trying to do. So the answer is no. Now if you jump ahead to the baptism that is where the humanity of Jesus and the divinity comes back together because that is the beginning point of Jesus' public ministry to all mankind as God. Alright? So He had to be both God and man at that time from the point of the baptism in order to say and do the things that he said and did, particularly the miracles. But up till that time, no. You see, when he was baptized, you recall the story of John the Baptist baptizing people. And John the Baptist had been doing this for some time before. And Jesus comes along uh, with a few of his disciples and wants to be baptized. And so when he comes out of the water after being baptized by John as representing mankind again, not because he was A sinner or anything, but in representing mankind, it was the heavens open up and the dove appears, and the voice of the Father says, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him." Okay, that's where the humanity and the divinity comes back together. Does that make sense? Agree. Okay. You better. <laughs> okay. Let let us go on. Since, uh, you know, there's a point here. It says, uh, exaltation through abasement. That is uh, uh, page 14 here at the bottom of that uh, scriptural section under chapter 2. Exaltation through abasement. Uh I just described really most of what that means here is The idea of the agony and the passion that Christ went through was really necessary to experience those things that all humanity has had to go through in some form or some degree or other. All right. It says, for it was not angels that he that is the Father, subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Instead, someone has testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? This is uh, Psalm 8. Alright? Let me let me read from Psalm 8 uh, because again, what Hebrews is doing is taking the Jewish writings and trying to get these people. Remember, this letter is being, or this sermon or letter, whatever, is being directed to people who are kind of waffling between Christianity and Judaism. They have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, but it is not, it is not doing for them what they expected. It is not really convincing them that this is the right road to salvation. And so they're kind of waffling. They're sitting on the fence, you might say. Which way should we go? And the writer is trying to convince them that they can't go back because all of those things in the past were intended for this period of time in Christianity and for the future not the past. So they can't go back to the past. And I'm saying can't go back. That is in their minds and hearts. Okay. Psalm 8. O oh Lord our God. How glorious is your name. Over all the earth. You have exalted your majesty. Above the heavens. By the way. This is sort of an aside, but we come across this quite often. In Old Testament scripture, and to some degree in early New Testament scripture, the word name means great deal more than what we call or think about it today. It just doesn't mean Joe or Peter, or Mary or Bill or whatever. It means the whole person, the whole concept of what that particular person is and represents. So, in this case, we're talking about God. God's name. Now, they didn't have a name for God outside of Yahweh, but the word Yahweh was so sacred to the Jewish people that they would never actually voice it. And that's how the word Lord came into our common existence. Let us go on. O Lord our God, how glorious is your name, your entire being over all the earth. You have exalted your majesty above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings you have fashioned praise because of your foes to silence the hostile and the vengeful. Now, most Jewish writings start out with a lot of flowery wording and uh, salutations and so forth. And this is kind of traditional. When I behold your heavens and the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you set in place, particularly that super moon the other night. Yeah. yeah. What is man that you should be mindful of him or the son of man? Uh, that you should care for him. Right? That son of man, again, is where Jesus takes that title from. For you have made him a little less than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Right? That's exactly what uh, the letter of the Hebrews is quoting right here. You have made him, and it's referring to Jesus in this case. Remember, Almost all of Old Testament scripture refers to and it points to uh, Jesus Christ eventually in one way or another. You have made him a little less than the angels because he was human as well as God and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him rule over the works of your hands. Putting all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yes, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fishes of the sea, and whatever swims to the paths of the sea. O Lord our God, again, how glorious is your name, your divine being over all the earth. Now, this looks at Christ, but it also looks at all mankind. As being greater than the angels? Hmm. Question mark there. In some ways, yes. Greater than the angels. In some ways. We'll get to that a little later. Okay. Now, this is important for several reasons. There was recently uh, an order of nuns who tried to convince people that Everything that God created was equal. You know, and they would say, you know, cats and dogs and uh, puppy dogs and so forth, and, you know, even uh, mosquitoes and uh, horseflies and so forth are all equal, and we should recognize and give credit to all of them. And uh, the bishop finally, in one particular place, had to uh, step in and say, no, sisters, uh, you might, you know, (laughs) it's interesting how priests talk to nuns. (laughs) But, no, sister, I'm afraid you're not uh, quite correct on this. Mankind is God's crowning glory of creation. Mankind, as it says right here, is a little lower or lower or above. <laughs> you have to stop and look at it. You have made him that is mankind, a little less than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. All right. And everything else then is put under mankind's control or domination. Important in many, many respects. And so the sisters had to sort of um, (laughs) give in to the bishop. Let's put it that way. They didn't particularly like it, but uh, they did. So that is what is being quoted here. You have made him a little lower than the angels for a while you crowned him with glory and honor, subjecting all things under his feet. In subjecting all things, he left nothing not subject to him. And that is, again, speaking of Christ. Yet at present, we do not see all things subject to Christ, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. He who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels because he represented all mankind and that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. important issue. Down at the bottom of page 14 is an important point. It says Christ is superior to the angels but from a new angle because he is God. In chapter 1, Christ was superior um, because he was the son of God. And here he is superior because he is a human being. Now, what this means is, the angels, as far as we know, were created by God before mankind... But created as servants of God. Now, as far as we know, they do not have free will like we do. And that is where the difference comes in. Mankind has free will to make choices. To good, to accept the good and reject the bad or a combination of both unfortunately and that's what uh, the weakness of mankind is um, well see we don't know for sure of that there is no there's no way to prove that that is a deduction that some theologians have made we don't have any, Direct proof of that, there's even though uh, Christ Himself says uh, in is it Matthew's Gospel or Mark, I forget offhand uh, that He saw Lucifer uh, fall from the sky. Um, that only indicates that Jesus, as God, was present beforehand. All right. To see that. But how and why. What the circumstances were. Of Lucifer falling from the sky. Uh, we have no way of knowing. Okay. Yes that's a common belief. Uh, but. Uh, at some point in time. If they did. Have free will. At some point in time. That ceased. Okay. And then. The uh, angels do not have free will. They are the servants of God. Mankind, including Christ, at the time he was in the flesh, uh, was a human being and was greater than the angels. Yeah. And he points out Christ is greater than the angels. Not only because he was the son of God, but because he was human. Okay. Israel's infidelity. This is important to understand because quite often people will say uh, that the uh, Old Testament doesn't, I remember uh, a priest saying from the altar one time well, oh, you don't have to pay any attention to the Old Testament because uh, that no longer applies. Um, and I felt like running up to him and saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you know. But I, I learned my lesson because one time that I did do that, uh, a priest was wrong. I didn't in public. I went to, up to him in the tabernacle later or not tabernacle, the sacristy later. And I said, did you say such and such? Oh, no, no, I didn't say that. I said, yes, you did. Not once, but two or three times. And I said, that's not correct. And you know it. Oh, boy, he got really upset. (laughs) Uh, Don't know why, but he did. (laughs) But when we speak about the infidelity of the Jewish people, we use their own writings their own writings that explain this if you go to Psalm 81 I won't read all of it because it's a little on the long side here. And it talks about, it says, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In other words, this is talking about uh, the father talking about how he protected uh, the Jewish people through the 40 years of wandering in the desert, how he relieved them. Uh, from slavery in Egypt, how he brought them into the promised land, and he gave them so much. It says, In distress you called, and I rescued you. Unseen I answered you in thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Oh, hear my people, and I will admonish you. Oh, Israel, will you not hear me? There shall be no strange God among you nor shall you worship any alien gods. See, they did, particularly before they went to Babylon. That was part of the problem. They had fell into apostasy and were worshiping all kinds of foreign gods. You probably heard about Ahab's wife Jezebel. You know, the word Jezebel conveys uh, a very wicked woman, and she was a queen. She did all kinds of wicked things. This was in the 9th century B.C. Uh, Then it goes on to say, I the Lord am your God, who led you forth from the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. This is the important part. But my people heard not my voice. And Israel obeyed me not. And so I gave them up to the hardness of their hearts. They walked according to their own counsels. Oh, if only my people would hear me, and Israel would walk in my ways. Quickly I would humble their enemies, and against their foes I would turn my hand. And those who hated the Lord would seek to flatter me, but their fate would endure forever. While Israel I would feed with the best of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would fill them. So God is trying over and over and over down through 2,000 years up to the time of Christ of working with these people and time and time again they drifted away and so that is why that is only one of the reasons but one of the important reasons why Christ was brought onto the scene because God had had enough of this disobedience and was going to change things um, and implement the next point of His plan of salvation. On okay. uh, uh, page 17 here says Israel's infidelity, a uh, uh, warning. And therefore, as Holy Scripture says, and this is uh, another Psalm that plays an important point throughout. This, and this is the one I asked you to read uh, for uh, today's lesson, Psalm 95. Uh, I'm just going to read part of it here uh, from verse 6. It says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord who made us, for he is our God, and we are the people he shepherds, the flock he guides. Oh, today that you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as at Meribah on the day of Masa in the desert, where your fathers tempted me and tested me, though they had seen my works. Did anyone go back and read about this incident? Okay. All right. You have two different incidents uh, where the people grumbled and threatened Moses and Aaron uh, with, by stoning because they were out of fresh food and fresh water in the desert. And a couple times this went on. And one at Mirabah and one at Massah. Uh, and then there was another time when Moses sent people uh, into Israel, he was sent. I think it was uh, six men from each of the twelve tribes into Israel on sort of a secret mission to explore what was there and uh, how uh, the people from Egypt that were wandering in the desert would be uh, received. And they came back because they were frightened by what they saw, and they said, oh, we can't uh, do that. We can't go into Israel because they have giants there. And they would devour us. And so they gave all these sad, uh, incorrect uh, reports, and God was very upset with these people, and that is why they wandered in the desert for 40 years. It wasn't that they didn't know where they were going. You know, and the desert isn't that big. It's a, it's mighty if you're walking across it. But, you know, uh, remember Abraham, I'm not Abraham, Jacob and his family uh, went back and forth two or three times, or parts of his family went back and forth two or three times. Um, so they knew where they were going. And it's, if anybody actually walked from Egypt to Jerusalem along the shores of the Mediterranean, it might take them a couple of weeks, but not 40 years. Okay. So they knew where they were going, but it was God's way of eliminating those people who rebelled by allowing them to die in the desert before they brought the innocent into the promised land. It's an important point that is, um, really kind of overlooked by the Jewish people in their own history. Did you have a question, Anna? Uh. So, I want to go on. But, these ideas of rebelling, you find throughout Jewish history. And yet, when Christ comes along, they don't go back to some of their own history and try to see how he measures up with a lot of the prophecies of the uh, Old Testament prophets, particularly Isaiah. If you go to Isaiah chapters 53, 52, 53, and 54, uh, they they give you so many pointers that are fulfilled in the teachings of Christ and in the life of Christ, that um, it's mind-boggling to me as to how they could not identify Christ with the Messiah that was prophesied uh by the you know, fifteen literary prophets over a period of about eight hundred well less than that, a little over five hundred years uh time period. Uh by the way, how many of you have read and reviewed this little diagram here of the four major periods of Old Testament history? Yeah. It's not something we're going to dwell on now, but if you have any questions, uh, let's uh, raise them at the end of this session today. Okay. All right. There's a few other things in these chapters that I want to really bring up. One of them is, of course, the idea that Jesus was superior to Moses. Now, Moses, of course, as I said earlier, was the most influential person in the Old Testament writings, the Old Covenant, of carrying out the Old Covenant and its writings, right? Not that Moses did the writings, but he was the one most influential, uh, in the Old Testament time period. Now, Hebrews is pointing out that Jesus is superior to Moses, even though that doesn't mean we're putting Moses down. It means that this is the next step in God's plan of salvation, and it is an elevated step, you might say, because Moses was a servant of God, a faithful an obedient servant of God, but Jesus is the son of God. Okay. And, of course, that makes a big difference. Um, and as you go on, and I hope all of you have read this, so I won't go on too much with that. The other point that is made here in here is this idea of rest. We mentioned that here, in Psalm 95, they will not enter into my rest. It says right at the very end, the very last uh, verse, Therefore, I swore in my anger, they shall not enter into my rest. I want to kind of talk about a little of what that means. The whole idea of uh, our time period began with the Jewish people and the writings of Ezra, you might say, the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, where each day was numbered and it was completed, creation was completed on the sixth day. And because creation was completed, on the seventh day, Jesus, or rather, God the Father rested. That became very important to Jewish uh, faith. The idea of rest on the Sabbath. And that is how our numbering system of the days uh, developed. It is from that kind of history and the Sabbath was always to the Jewish people the last day it wasn't until the 4th century AD when that was changed and not by the Catholic Church that was changed by the Emperor Constantine who felt after he became a Christian or Catholic uh, through uh, many prayers of his uh, family. Uh, he decided that because Christ rose on Sunday, the first day of the week, and that the uh, Holy Spirit was released to mankind on Sunday, the first day of the week, that the Christian faith would recognize Sunday as their Sabbath or the day of worship, and giving God the best that they had to give their time period, their love, their devotion, etc., on the first day of the week rather than the last day of the week. Okay. So, again, a lot of people uh, criticize the Catholic Church for changing that. It wasn't the Catholic Church, it was the Emperor Constantine, who changed a lot of other things and because of his uh, many good things that he did for the church, uh, the church went along with him because they did not uh, interfere with um, more important issues. Okay. Now, the idea of rest, as I said, comes first of all from the idea of the Uh, Seventh day of rest of God after creation. Later on, in some other portions of scripture, the idea of rest was then transferred to the idea of bringing the uh, people from Egypt into the promised land and giving them rest in that time period. So Psalm 95 is really referring to rest at that time. The people coming from Egypt and any other time after that. The promised land was recognized as uh, a place and a time of rest. And then that remained until the time of Christ. And then... Christ talks about the eternal rest being heaven. Our time period in heaven. Okay? So today, we, when we speak of God's rest, we are talking about our returning to heaven, or returning to God in heaven at the end of time. Okay? At the end of our time, which would be our death, if we are uh, favored and lucky enough to get to heaven uh, or at the end of all time. But it's an important issue that you understand the background of where it came from. So you have three different major time periods of rest. God's rest on the seventh day of creation. God's bringing the People into the promised land after the uh, release from Egypt, and in modern times, uh, our rest in eternal life with God in heaven. Uh. There are a few other important points here that I would like to also make. Another issue is forgot just where where it is in here but the whole idea of house the word house is often used in this book. Uh, it does not mean dwelling does not mean where a person actually lives. What it's talking about is house in the way of uh, or descendants or uh, a dynasty or a family or a community. And the idea of uh, parish comes from the idea of this house where we are part of God's personal community, his personal family. And that is all of the faithful. All of these ideas come under the overall topic of faithfulness. Okay. And there's another part here about desert. Desert has often been used throughout Scripture as a place of uh, purgation or purity. The whole idea of the Egyptians being released from Egypt, but wandering in the desert for 40 years, as I said earlier, was partly to purify them. And those who were, who took place in the molten calf issue, or the rebellion at Mirabar or Massa, uh, were were, uh, I was going to say exterminated. That's not quite right. Uh, they died out, you might say. So only the innocent people who left Egypt and those who were born in that time period in the desert, along with Joshua and Caleb and their immediate families, because they were much, much younger than Moses, uh, were brought into the promised land. So it was God's way of not just wiping them out, but letting them die of natural causes over a period of time, but not letting them come into the promised land. Now, there's an issue here that isn't part of this book, but it's a part of the history of this time period. A lot of people will say that Moses did not enter the promised land because he was part of the people who doubted God, uh, at the uh, uh, Mirabah when the idea of striking the rock for water came about and he doubted. Well, I doubt that very much for a couple of reasons. One, Moses did not enter the promised land because his job had been completed. All right? He was a roughly over 100 years old, because we knew that he was treated as the daughter of the Pharaoh uh, until he was a grown adult, not certain of the age, but a grown adult. He then killed an Egyptian, and uh, out of fear uh, fled and attended sheep for his mother's brother, uh for roughly 40 years you know, biblical 40 years a long time but imprecise period and then he came back and he was the governor you might say of those people that were released from Egypt and wandered through the desert for 40 years so the guy was pretty old you know and his job was complete And it was now time for a younger person to start. So, it was just plain common sense that he was, you know, tired out. Like I feel sometimes. But there's another reason. Anybody else give me the other reason that we know that this whole idea of Moses not entering the promised land because he disobeyed God? Uh Uh-uh. Remember at the transfiguration. The transfiguration of Christ on Mount Tabor, Where he appeared with, and James and John were there to testify. And he appeared as God before them so that they could see, they could get a quick glimpse of what God really looks like. But also, remember Moses and Elijah appeared with him. So, if Moses was condemned for not obeying God, which was was incorrect, of course, but some people believe that, he wouldn't have been in that scene of appearing with God on Mount Tabor in front of James and John, along with Elijah. And the purpose of Elijah and Moses being there was Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets all of whom spoke for Jesus Christ in one form or another. All of the writings that are attributed to Moses or Moses was the influential person behind them and all of the prophets spoke of Christ. In one form or another. And that is why. They were part of that scene. In the apparition. Of the transfiguration. Does that make sense? Anybody have a problem. Or question. Or whatever about that. Okay. Elijah represented the prophets. Yeah. Elijah. Was one of the first prophets. He was not a literary prophet. You had Elijah and Elisha, were considered prophets in those days, and there were a few others, uh, but they did not leave any writings behind. The others, the 15 other literary prophets, beginning with Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, etc., etc., they all left writings. Yes, ma'am? Uh, Now, what brought it upon Moses to take charge of everything? That was God's will. Okay. Yes. God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, if you go back to the burning bush scene, and told him that he wanted um, Moses to go back to the Pharaoh and get his people released. Well, Moses, you know, was kind of trembling because he knew that the Pharaoh was... Uh, not too happy about his problem, okay. Um, but that's where that came in, okay. Any other questions? Yes, yes, that's a good point uh, that he just pointed out. That the idea of God's showing Moses, who you know wasn't perfect, he did a few bad things as well as. He did a lot of good things and was a faithful servant for many, many years. Uh, It shows God's mercy by bringing him into the transfiguration apparition. Yes, Susan? Well, the thing is, doubting in itself is not wrong, is not a sin. Doubting is often part of God's way of making us move to the next step to do something about it. When we doubt, that is not a sin. That is not wrong. It, unless we just leave it there and let it fester. But if we doubt something, God is really trying to get us to move to a next step and look into why. Or look into whatever it is that you are doubting and to find out uh, what is the basis for this or for that. And I have a real hard time uh, when you ask, or when certain people, whether they're Catholic, Christian, or non-religious, will come up with a statement that tells me that they haven't done their homework. And they just want me to clarify something uh, so that they don't have to do their homework. And a lot of times, instead of just answering their questions right out, I'll give them uh, pointers as to where to go and have them look it up. Because that is a way for them to be educated a little bit better than just giving them the answer. I don't know if it's true or not. That's it's better if you do much things first than you find out Right, right. I totally agree with that. Yes. Uh, doubting is something I think that mm-hmm. is part of the way God works with mankind. And he's getting you to move to the next step and on your own. Not not just you know, get a quick answer and as you say assume that that quick answer is is accurate. Yeah, That's one thing I do before I come to class is I pray to God that I'm accurate above all. Because there's no point sooner or later somebody's going to find out that I was wrong or I bluffed or whatever. Uh, I goof enough as it is. Yeah, you know. But I don't want to give Anyone the impression that what I say is gospel unless I believe it myself. so let's let's end with a prayer. God, help me. You'd be surprised how I get myself into trouble by answering too many questions. Anyways, in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time because it should be a time not only of learning and exploring, but a time to enjoy the idea of exploring Scripture. So we thank you for letting us have a, a little na- laugh now and then, but help us then to open our minds to the more serious things that Scripture offers. But again, in a joyful, loving way. So we thank you for this time together. We just thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.